I'm so excited today because we're going to interview Megan Chance, who is an author, critically acclaimed, awarded, uh, wrote many, many books. Megan, it's it's so wonderful to meet you finally. Uh, I've been excited now for weeks about this interview. <laughs> well, thank you guys for having me here. Um, it's great to be here. I am a historical fiction writer. Mostly I've written more than... I don't know, more than 20 books at this point. I also wrote a young adult trilogy at one point in time. So, but mostly what I love is historical fiction. I love going back in time, but also sort of making connections between historical fiction and women's stories and sort of how it relates to the world today, especially in women's lives. So that's kind of been my focus for many, many, many years. Well, I also wanted to tell the listeners that uh, your books fascinate me and I will, yes, I, they're just, uh, they just pull you in and you want to keep reading until you finish. And just even in the last few weeks I was traveling, so I read a few more. The first one I ever read was in 2008, An Inconvenient Wife. And that book connected to me on such a deep level that I kept kind of like having different scenes playing in my head for years and years now. And I couldn't remember for the longest time what the actual title of the book was. I just had these scenes play in my head. And then recently I was trying to write a blog about books that might be really uh, cool to read. And your book came to my mind, but I couldn't remember the title. So I was trying to Google different scenes that I could remember and hypnosis because that was one of the themes in the book. And then eventually I found, I was like, yes, I found it. Then I found your website. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I just, you know, I saw the contact in there and I was like, I'm just going to reach out to Megan and see if she would want to interview. And this is for me personally, this is like such a cool experience because how many times do we ever get to talk to authors that we love, you know, to read their books and there, there we are. So it's like my personal uh, dream come true. And I, I really, really appreciate that you're going to talk to us and tell us more about all this, these wonderful books that you're writing. Well, that's so cool. I'm really glad you reached out. Again, since, you know, since you touched me so deeply with the, especially the Un Inconvenient Wife book, I read it when I was married and I read it and sort of, um, you know, put it out of mind for a while. And then I was going through the divorce and it was kind of like that book was speaking to me on many, you know, on many different levels. I felt like an inconvenient wife for my husband. And so thank you again for writing it. And you're so good about expressing emotions and writing about emotions in such different ways, nuances, I want to say. Thank you for understanding women so well. Well, <laughs> thank you. I mean, that's quite a compliment. I mean, you know, I am a woman, so that's part of it. But I do think that was, you know, I mean, my mom used to say that, you know, I was, that my whole life was sort of in planning to be a writer. I have a very, very good memory. Like, I remember things that happened to me when I was 18 months old. Wow. And, uh, I know it's bizarre. I thought everybody was like that. You know, it didn't never occurred to me that other people weren't. And um, and so I just I guess I'm just a very good observer. But also one of the things that that I tend to do is is I sort of understand all sides of us of something 
and you know or at least I try to and I love people's stories like I want to know why do you think that why do you believe that you know and that was one of the things that's one of the things that has sort of defined my existence from the time I can remember I love learning about things just everything you know I mean you know just people's belief systems, why they believe the way they do, why, you know, they make the choices they do. Because I've been fascinated by choice and consequence, I think, my whole life. You know, the fact that you make a choice and you pay a consequence and then, I mean, you have to live with the consequences of the choices you make. And, you know, and sometimes the consequences of your choice, your choices are defined by the culture and the time that you live in. And, you know, I mean, the thing that that I realized as a historical writer and over time doing research is that people really have not changed over mm -hmm. time. What changes is the choices that are available to them and the doors that are open. And so, you know, but the passions they have, the loves that they have, the desires they have, none of that has changed at all. And so, you know, you can plunk people into a historical era and they're the same, you know, psychologically as people today. It's just that, you know, picture what happens when all of a sudden you cannot make a choice because the culture says you can't, you know, and bang, what happens to you? You know, what happens when you feel trapped? What happens when, you know, you're subjugated by the, by culture, by expectation, by money, by class, you know, I mean, and it's just not so difficult to sort of throw, it's not difficult for me to sort of throw myself into that situation and say, wow, how would I feel about that, you know? And I don't know if it's just a, a gift that I happen to have, but I'm, it's just something I've always been able to do. You definitely have a gift. That's a hundred percent. How did you, I mean, you said your mother said that you were always sort of programmed from a young age to become a writer. When I guess, did that happen for you? When did you know that you wanted to be a writer? I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was six. Okay. And, you know, I used to be, uh, I was a huge reader. I've been a voracious reader my whole life. And uh, I was, I remember, you know, when I got my library card, I got my library card, you know, I, I used to live in Columbus. So I got my first library card at the, some library in Columbus. And um, I remember... I would assign myself weeks like, okay, this is ocean week and this is prairie week and wow. this is mountain week. And I would go to the library and check out every book I could find, you know, on those things. And then I would just read them until, you know, my mind was stuffed with all these things that I knew. And so I kind of became like, well, a, a huge know-it-all, like there was nothing, else <laughs> know, you know? And so I mean, and my family's still like, oh, of course, Megan knows, you know, <laughs> but, but, and I, and I just knew that was sort of what I needed to do that I, I mean, I used to sort of walk around the backyard and tell stories to myself, you know, or act them out or, you know, it was just like how I, um, 
how I spent my time. I was, I just liked to be lost in the stories that were in my own head. And, and if I read something that I loved, I would rewrite it kind of in my own words. So it was just, it, there was just never, the only thing I ever really sort of contemplated being other than a writer at a young age was a, like a drum majorette, but you know, like I couldn't catch the baton. I was terrible. So, you know, and then, you know, when I was in uh, college, I went into college intending to be an English major, writing, you know, and um, I got, I had been all through high school. um, They had, in high school, they had set me up to study with a published writer locally one day, you know, one day a month. And they had sent me to, poetry workshops and I had a very great high school and a teacher who was extremely supportive and so I was used to sort of just you know writing things the night before getting A's you know it was not a struggle right and I go to college and I wrote my first paper for like a composition and poetry class did the same thing like the night before turn it in wow. I got a D <gasps> and I was so <laughs> stunned and taken aback that I said well screw this I'm not going to be an English major (laughs) obviously the English program sucks and you know and so I changed my mind on the on the on the basis of that one paper I went into broadcasting and journalism instead Um, and the interesting thing about that was I graduated college with a broadcasting degree. I um, didn't want to be a reporter because I hated being on camera. (laughs) Yeah. I hated like calling people up and saying, you know, uh, how, you know, I hated talking. Yes. (laughs) So I thought, well, I'll be a producer. Yes. It was organizational and easier. And for whatever reason, I fell into being a photographer because the, mm-hmm. that was a job that was available at the time. And this is in the early 80s where there aren't very many female photographers. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly coming up against walls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a female photographer, you're given the worst equipment. You're, you know, given all the jobs everybody hates. And, um, you know, and I'm out there carrying like 100 pounds of equipment wherever I go. And, um and you're coming up like against real sexism constantly. Um, and the interesting thing about that job was like, I never felt, I never had an affinity for being a photographer. And um, I did have an affinity for like being a fast driver and being able to get places <laughs> and stuff like that. And I became the kind of photographer that they could, they could send me out alone on a story because I could write the story. I could ask the questions, but it became clear to me that it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I wanted to be. And I remember all these photographers were sitting around one day thinking, and they were all saying, how do we light this stage show? Cause they were taking pictures of like a Thompson twins concert or something. And I realized, you know what? I don't care. I just don't care. Mm-hmm. And that's when I thought, you know what? I can't spend the rest of my life doing something that I don't care about. 
-hmm. And I was writing in my free time. I was writing stories and novels and stuff. So I quit and I became a waitress and, uh, and thought, okay, this is it. This is, I'm going to be a writer. This is what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. So all because of a D. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? Here's the thing. It sounds like, because all the, the books that you write, they have these themes of women sort of being being stopped, having these very rigid boundaries around whatever they want to do. Women that cannot be passionate in anything, sex, in their jobs. They they can't have jobs. They can't read. They, you know, they're not allowed or they are not encouraged to express themselves. And so it seems to me like maybe the destiny had it that you had to go through some of these experiences you know, experience sexism, experience some of these walls that you had to fight against because that probably gives you this this firsthand experience of how it feels to be stuck in this way and, and you know, what it takes to fight through this. Because you're so yeah, good at know, explaining it, you know. Yeah, you know, I believe that's true. Mm. I believe that I, that was the road I was meant to be on. Mm-hmm. And, like, I learned so much about human nature actually doing that job because I'm working in TV news, right? Mm-hmm. And you're seeing people at both the best and worst moments of their lives, you know? So, and as an observer, as somebody who's used to sort of, like, really looking at what people are going through and really trying to understand what they're going through, I learned an enormous amount about mm-hmm. just being human in those years that I was working in TV news. So yeah, I think it was all great, you know, uh, fodder for, you know, my little writer's mind, you know? So ultimately it ended up being one of the best possible things that could have happened to me. And so. and I and I can also, you know, just see that uh, it's kind of like you have a little bit of a temper about you, you know? It's like you're like, no, you're going to give me a D. I'm going to show you differently. A fighter, right? Because yeah. the, there's, you know, again, there's these themes of, of women that are kind of fighting against the structure, the, the, the whatever's stopping them and the injustice. And so, so I can see you have, then you're writing really from experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could say that. I'm very much like, don't tell me what to do. Yeah, you know? yeah. I like that. That's awesome. Um, how did you, I guess, because there's so much, histo- you're a historical novel uh, writer. How did you get into writing historic uh, fiction? You know, I always loved it. Um, it was always sort of what I loved to read, that and fantasy, you know, when I was a kid. And, and um, you know, books like The Witch of Blackbird Pond was a big influence and um, uh, those kinds of books. And then when I got to be, you know, an older reader, a lot of the historical fiction of the, I guess it would have been 70s, I suppose. Um, you know, Susan Howitch, Taylor Caldwell, all of these big historical authors, you know, and the thicker the book, the better I liked it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it was it was that and the fact that from a very young age, I loved research. I just mm-hmm. loved it. And so, you know, you could say, Megan, do a paper on this in school, and I'd be. I'm all in, you know, Mm -hmm. I can read 50 books on this, you know, and for me, so many of the ideas come from just doing the research, 
you know, the story gets formed from the research itself. So I don't, you know, I can read research books and that can, you know, I can be, well, there's a great plot point. There's a great plot point. There's a big emotional scene. I can already see it in my head. So I, and I think the limitations that historical facts provide, um, I find a fascinating challenge. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was a lot of it. And also I felt too, very much so, that as I began to do historical research, what I realized was, of course, what we all know is history is written by the victors, right? And history is written by men and mostly white European men. And when I was doing the research for, say, An Inconvenient Wife, for example, and I was doing research into the birth of psychology and realizing that the whole, the whole concept, by the way, for An Inconvenient Wife came from a little tidbit I'd heard that hysteria was so prevalent in women towards the end of the 19th century that doctors were using vibrators to... Um, I like that part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I thought that cannot be true. That and it was. You're telling true. me that it was. It was completely oh true. Oh my gosh. And so as I sort of delved into that and I'm like, oh my God. So you're saying that they were curing hysteria or they were trying to cure hysteria through alleviating sexual Sexual tension. Yeah. And boredom. Wow. And... And the more I delved into that and the more I realized that psychology, the field of psychology, grew based on study of the disenfranchised, which were at the time women and minorities. And they were doing ovariotomies and clitoridectomies and stuff without anesthesia on these women mm. in order to study hysteria and you know, they were putting them, they were studying hysteria in asylums where these women were put and where they were abandoned by their husbands who, you know, either didn't want to have anything to do with them or were tired of them or whatever. I mean, this is, these are true facts. It only took two doctors and before that, none to sort of say, yeah, this woman is crazy to put a woman away for the rest of her life, you know, in an asylum. And they ignored, they didn't care about them. You know, so a woman is inconvenient or a man wants to control her money. That's all he has to do, you know, and then they were doing these studies and these operations and a woman doesn't even need to consent to this, you know. And so I'm looking into these case studies and they're horrible. They're frightening. They're sickening. And I'm looking at the, the history of psychology being built on the backs of disenfranchised people. And I'm like, this is women's history that nobody knows about. No woman I know knows any of this. Mm -mm. You know, and the more I sort of delved into the kind of history that existed for women, the more I sort of realized women don't even know their own history ever mm -hmm. about anything because it's not out there. It's not written down. I mean, I had to delve deep into these old case studies to even wow. find, you know, and when you look back at so, sort of like things like spiritualism, mm -hmm. and that was essentially a women's movement because women were thought to be the most powerful mediums because they were so passive. 
Mm-hmm. And so here's a way for women to gain power through passivity. And, you know, this is just, it's like fascinating stuff. And the more you start to look at how women, you know, women's history and the way it cycles up and down and the way women gain power and then have some sort of power and then the way men just take it over mm-hmm. and it goes away then for another, you know, 20, 30 years and then they gain it again and it gets taken over. It's cyclical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, women don't know this. They don't know mm-hmm. it. And it sort of became for me sort sort of enraging on one hand and fascinating on the other and just something that I needed to sort of say, okay, wait, you know, and it happens every time. The Every time that women gain wow. any kind of power culturally or politically or whatever, it gets taken away um, because it's like either the money's in it or the power's in it, whatever. I mean, it's all about those two things. And, um, and that for me just became something that I had, I felt compelled to deal with historically to say, look, this is how it was historically. It still is this way. Look at the comparisons, you know. You're right. I'm just so happy that you're writing about it because as you're as you're discussing it, I I can tell the listeners that when you when they read your books, they can actually see the trends kind of like what happened in history, which is really awesome, you know, to to be able to sort of like not just read the historical facts, but also have a story with it and get to know these people as as kind of like people like you and me, like everyone, just living in a different different historical period. Then you have the yeah. empathy versus just reading a story from the past that's kind of disconnected. When you grow to love a character and then you you hear these things that happen to them, then it it, it hits differently. Yes. Then you could it's. It, the history becomes real. This happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's really awesome that you mm-hmm. are bringing up what? these things that get b- buried in history yes. a little bit. Yeah, they do yeah. get buried. And I think, too, it's like everybody, like I said, everybody can sympathize with being trapped. Everybody can sympathize <sighs> with, you know, being in a situation of where you have no control mm-hmm. over your own, what, autonomy, mm-hmm. over your own body, over your own you know, mm-hmm. how do you progress in the world over your own creative mm-hmm. creativity? I mean, when I think about all of the wasted gifts, you know, that women or minorities have had, all the wasted gifts, you know, it's just like, man, where we could be if we weren't so focused on keeping people down. Mm-hmm. On know? control, yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, you know, to me, it's just like, a, I don't know. It's some, if, it, if I think about it too much, it kind of makes me crazy. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why, you know, when I start reading your books, I get so emotional and I just, I, so then eventually I have to be like, okay, I need to put your books away for a minute because I can't be so mad about stuff because I get yeah. mad. Because <laughs> they, they tell, you know, you discuss real issues that are still happening and, mm-hmm. Again, I mean, I connect to every feeling you discuss in there, so... But it's so powerful because I feel like art is like the conduit for change because Mm -hmm. you think you're just going to a movie and you're having a good time and you're eating your popcorn and sour gummy worms and then you leave changed. You can't Mm -hmm. forget what you saw. You can't forget what you felt. Um, So 
putting in these lessons and these historical things and but and then connecting it like I said earlier to a character it just I think that's so powerful because no one wants to be yelled at this is what you need to do this is what happened to women da, 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 da. Uh, I mean I don't mind if people do that but a lot of <laughs> yeah. men probably wouldn't appreciate that so or other or whoever you know so yeah I just I really I admire that a lot well yeah. you know and it does it is more effective if you are forced to sort of empathize with that situation and sort of say, well, how would you feel if you were put here, if you were given only this, if you were, you know, I, I think, you know, the problem with most people in the world is they aren't forced to walk in somebody's shoes. They aren't forced to empathize. They aren't forced to say, well, you know, what if I had a family of four and I had a hundred dollars a month to feed them you know i mean this is the kind of society we kind of live in so and art is the closest you get to walking yeah. in yeah. someone else's shoes yeah. for sure yeah and the other thing i really appreciate is that you i don't i've not read all of your books but i've read a few already and they have i mean the Happy endings. That's what I'm trying to say. They have happy endings. And I think to myself, thank God for that because, <laughs> you know, I'm stressed out every day and I got to deal with this and that and the other. And when I'm reading and I'm living the emotions of the of the character, I'm so happy when I'm so relieved that they, that you ended it in an, on a positive note, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So relieved. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's stress. The world is so stressful. It's yes. nice to have to feel like somebody survives it, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And yes. No, I really appreciate that. Since our most of our listeners are from Columbus, tell us a little more about how you're connected to Columbus. Well, I, you know, um, my dad went to Ohio State, but the Ohio State University, and he got his PhD there. And so we lived not far away from there. I went to, you know, an elementary school on Crestview. I, you know, we lived I, we lived on in several different houses on Indianola. That's cool. Um, when I was growing up, yeah. And Tulane. And I, I mean, I lived there until I was 11. And my extended family still lives in Ohio, most of them. And um, my uncle runs the Spotted Horse Ranch in the Hocking Hills. So I, uh, and I've, you know, come back, you know, frequently. I, I, you know, like I said, I have a very, very good memory. And so I still think of myself as an Ohioan, you know, and so when people, I mean, I've lived here for, in Washington for like, I don't know, I mean, I don't know, I can't do adding 40, (laughs) years, and, and I still, when people say, where are you from, I still say Ohio, you know, so it's just, it's weird, I have a strange affection um, for Ohio, and I still remember Columbus vividly, and I still remember, you know, walking to school, and wow, doing all those kinds of things. So I still remember that neighborhood just vividly. You know, I got a concussion walking to school and we had like, there was this driveway that was really steep and covered with ice. And every kid on the way to school stopped there to slide down it. <laughs> had a whole group on the way to school sliding down it and I fell and hit my head. Yeah, but you know, it. yeah, I remember, you know, parades. I remember homecoming going to, you know, the 
the frat houses and stuff and checking out all the big, you know, uh, what, you know, statue, all the stuff that they were building for homecoming. Yeah, so I, you know, I just have this huge fondness for Columbus. And, you know, so it was really funny when you contacted me and I'm like, oh my God, you guys are like very close. To very right. close, so yeah. Only you know? a few minutes from like the yeah. crest, uh, what is it called? Crestwood, Crestview, Crestview yeah. Bar. Uh, I've been yeah. there a few times. Yeah, we're pretty yeah. close to that. So. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I every time we come back, um, my sister and I will drive by our old house. You know? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's very I, cool. Yeah. Um, and, I, and again, I'm so happy you found the email from me because... As, as probably everybody knows, everybody receives so many spam emails anymore. It's like hard to tell, you know, is it a, a, a prince from, you know, some country in <laughs> Africa or is it <laughs> I won a million dollars? Is this person even real? You know, so I'm glad you responded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was wild because I'm like, wow, Columbus. OK, that is so funny. Yeah. Um, I was curious if any themes from Columbus appear in your writing or inspire you in any way. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think so. I think, you know, I mean, being from the Midwest, which, you know, regardless of how long I've lived here, I still have a very, you know, I mean, I, I my formative years were, you know, in Ohio, in Columbus. So um, I do, you know, if, if you read deeply, you'll see that, you know, I kind of refer to especially the towns around, you know, like uh, Lancaster and Zanesville. And I'm always sort of revert, you know, referring to those places. That's where my grandparents live okay. in Lancaster. And, you know, my, uh, my mom went, you know, was from Carroll. And so all these little towns, I'm constantly sort of referring back to. If I have, in fact, I just wrote the new manuscript I turned in. She's from Zanesville. Okay. You know, oh. She comes from a pig farm in Zanesville, which is where my uncle, my uncle had a pig farm. He had a farm and he raised pigs in Lancaster. So, you know, I'm constantly sort of throwing, you know, Ohio in there all the time. So, um, you know, my relatives okay. were, you know, farmers. <laughs> so um, I'm always, you know, it's just easy. Oh, I yes. remember that. I can bring that in, you know. So, yeah, I do that quite a bit. So That's cool. very, very cool. So you're a full-time writer, right? Yeah. Okay. Because mm -hmm. most writers, it seems like they, you, they, because it's such a competitive market, it seems like they have to have other careers somewhat, but. Yeah. Well, I have a husband who's very good at like, you know, I mean, if, if not for him, probably I, you know, I would have to have another job because the problem with being a writer is that it's so up and down. I mean, yeah. sometimes your, your income is never consistent and mm -hmm. they drag it out over so many years that if you had to average out, you know, well, if I had to average out what I was making per year, it, it's barely a living wage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fortunately we're a two income family. So, you know, but yeah, writing is, unless you're in the like 1%, like way up there, mm -hmm. um, it's not a great way to make a living. Mm -hmm. What would you say to aspiring writers? You know, aspiring writers, having, you know, been one, um, there's not, 
much you can you can't dissuade uh, an aspiring writer nor should you because everybody has something to say and they should be sane you know i mean you never know who you impact or what they do with that impact i mean everything grows uh, you know it feeds upon itself so like you have to say yeah go do it you know but but be aware one the thing that you need is a community you mm -hmm. know i mean that's what i say to all aspiring water find your community you know join a writing group be there where you've got other people to support you mm -hmm. and cheer for you and commiserate with you because it's hard I mean if everybody could do it they would and that's you know because it's really hard and the business is harder now than it has ever been I mean you can do self-publishing and that's hard too I mean because you have to dedicate so much of your time to marketing and publicity and stuff um, in order to make any kind of a mark or a living at all and you know where publishers now are consolidating and um and they're putting you know less and less money into marketing authors and they're still publishing huge amounts of uh, books i mean what i read somewhere i can't remember it's like in america alone it's something like i don't know 200,000 books published a year you know and people are reading less and less and less because there's so many things out there competing for their attention. So I guess that's my, my biggest advice is, you know, join a community, um, do it, you know, be aware that, you know, what you're walking into is um, the arts, you know, and the arts are by their very nature, hard to make a living. At. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I would never say to somebody, don't do it, you know, because it's so rewarding, even if you're not making money. I mean, for me, there was a point, I mean, I wrote, I think from the time I decided, but from the time I, I quit news and decided that I wanted to be a published author. It was eight years and six manuscripts before I finally sold. And the thing, I had written the fifth manuscript, it was getting a lot of good rejections, but rejections. And I sort of just said, okay, if I never got published, would, would I keep doing this? And my answer was, yeah, I'd been telling myself stories my whole life. It was for me, the process, you know, it was just going in there and writing the story and getting into the story and researching. It was the whole thing, you know, it was just like, I love doing this. And so it was sort of like, okay, I'm not going to worry about what's out there. I'm not going to worry about the trends. I'm not going to worry about anything. I am going to write this next manuscript just for me. Right. And that's what I did. And that's the one that sold. And so I think, you know, and there have been times throughout my career where a manuscript I've written didn't, didn't sell, 
or I got halfway through a manuscript and said, oh, this doesn't work. I have to put it aside or, you know, I mean, I, you know, I've been consistently published for like 30 years, but there are holes in that time. You know, the only thing I've, that's been consistent about that consistency is me, you know? And so you just have to say, well, that's cool. The thing I love about this is the actual writing. It's actual process. Once the book is out there, then it's not mine anymore. You know, it belongs to everybody else. It's and, ours now. <laughs> yeah. And I can't worry about it. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't be there. I can't be in their heads. I can't explain anything. I can't do anything about the marketing or the promotion or what the publisher decides to do with it. But that's, I think that that's, that's also the cool thing about it. I think it's like you're saying, you know, you're in the arts, you've created, it's like a painting, you know, and you can't whisper into someone's ear what you meant to say. They, the, the beauty of it is in the eye of the beholder, you know, what they're going to read into it. Like, for example, for me, again, I'm going to go back to the An Inconvenient Wife book. It was not only that I related to the themes in it, you know, I love hypnosis, you know, my father was uh, healed through hypnosis from alcoholism. Um, so, you know, of course I feel connected to that. But then also, you know, five years ago, I started remembering my past lives out of the blue, you know, and I remembered a past life in the 19th century. And that's why I think I'm so drawn to it. And of course, maybe you didn't write the book for me to remember my past life, right? But but that's what happened for me. So, so thank you again. I mean, I'm just going to keep saying it. <laughs> well, but that's, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I can't control what other people yeah. take from it. But if yeah. it, it impacts them, that's awesome. You know, I can only do, I can only get from it. You know, I go in and I write a book for me. And if mm -hmm. it impacts you, that is awesome. That's, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think this advice spans with really anyone in the arts. I'm a songwriter, so this really speaks to me because sometimes I, when I get, we've talked about this, getting caught up in the, the I got to do this thing and I got to make sure I do my taxes for this. And then I got to ask this person for that and make sure the lawyer did that. And it's like, I don't even feel like doing this anymore. And I, but the thing is, I can't stop. It's my purpose. So I really relate to that. And you said within the inconsistencies, you were the one consistent thing. And I think that's the greatest thing to remember when you're in any kind of art just focus yeah. on what you love like I always think when people ask me about how how I stay consistent I'm like okay what was the thing I always did as a kid you didn't have to ask me I wanted to do it I was obsessed with it and it was always writing like songs I wrote stories too but more songs <laughs> um and that thing that I loved as a kid when I was – before I was impacted by people in the industry and hearing this and that and judging myself and comparing, that was the thing that mattered. So that's what I, I have to do. I feel like it's my purpose and it sounds like writing is your purpose. Right. And, and that's exactly it. That's what you yeah. have to do. You have to say, look, you know, this is what I love. Would I do it anyway? Yes. Would I, you know, I mean – and you have to let like let go of all the other stuff because all the other stuff is always in the way yeah. and it's always depressing and it's always or it's if it's not depressing it messes with you always in some ways mm -hmm. the good reviews mess with you the bad reviews mess with you you know and so you have to just sort of say they're irrelevant really you know i have to say what i have to say and if people want to be part of that that's cool and if they don't, that's got to be cool, too. You know, all this stuff in the arts are subjective. 
And, you know, someone doesn't like what I do, which is, you know, which is why I never ask people, my friends or anyone else, you know, that, that people will say, oh, I'm reading your book. And I never say, oh, do you like it? You know, I never say, I always just say, cool, you know, and if they never get back to me about it, then I just, you know, let it go because it doesn't matter. Right. You know, you take from art, whatever you're going to take from it. And if it speaks to you, great. If it doesn't, it's fine. You know, it's not meant for you. Not everything is meant for you. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it. Art is really a a gray thing and people try to make it black or white and try to rate it or go off of numbers. I think that's the biggest thing with streaming right now with music and book writing too. There are numbers and it's it's trying to make this thing that isn't black or white, black or white. And it's just, oh my gosh, just terrible for the mental health, I think. so. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. how often have you said, I love this song and someone else goes, oh my God, that's the worst song ever written. Right. Or same thing with a book. I have yeah. favorite books and, you know, I'll tell somebody else to read them and they'll be like, why is that your favorite book? And I'm like, I don't even want to talk about why it's my favorite book. I don't want to have this conversation. With mm-hmm. you. you know, I don't. I don't. I'm not interested in convincing you. And I'm not interested in hearing why you don't like it. Right. It doesn't matter. It's it's yeah. very it's very hard because there's not enough support supporting one another in, mm-hmm. in, in the world. It's almost like someone tries to find an angle to tear you apart for something instead right. of just, just taking it, like you said, you know, you give people the freedom to enjoy whatever they want to enjoy. And if they don't enjoy it, just don't read it or don't look at it or turn right. the channel. Don't tell Let me it that it's terrible. If I am the I one enjoying it and I'm creating it and I'm happy about it, don't don't destroy me for that, right? I know, right? Yeah. Like, let it go. What does yeah. it matter to you? Right. Yeah, or no, don't leave a call. Co- yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go on. No, you go ahead. <laughs> or I would, I was just going to say, don't leave a comment saying, oh, this is trash. Okay. Why? Yeah. You know, if know. at least be constructive if you're going right. to. There is no, I, I, you know, saying I hate your heroine. Okay. Why? Mm. You know, I hate your heroine is not constructive criticism. No. I'm sorry, but it's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, or, you know, I, I hate pumpkin spice, you know, coffee. Okay. So. Right. Move you on. Know, what does that have to do with anything? Everyone's you know? seeing from their lens, impacted by everything they've been through. Maybe the heroine rem- uh, reminded them of their bully when they were six. Yeah. So that's exactly right. So it, so it doesn't <laughs> matter. I mean, it matters to you. It doesn't yeah. matter to anybody else. You know? Exactly. Yeah. But. Yeah, we live in a world right now where everyone wants to have an opinion and everyone wants to share it and they want their opinion to be like the only truth that's out there. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> something. I mean, do you ever, I mean, you know, I you go on social media and I know I do. I feel myself just going. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Just mm-hmm. down and down and, you know, uh, and, you know, sometimes I'm just on social media and for no reason at all feel like, God, I feel like crying. I have yep. no idea what hit me. Yep. You know, but like something did, you right. know, and it's just like you just have to be aware, I think, of all the things in the world that are battering you all the time mm-hmm. and be aware that, um, you know, to seek your refuges where you can and in your books. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's where I seek the refuge. Yes. <laughs> that brings me actually to a question related yeah. to mental health and your passion for writing, if I can recall my question properly. Um, 
how do you, how do you if you if your writing is the thing that makes you happy, but then it's also you know you have to do the marketing on social media and that makes you sad. How do you keep going and how do you not let it make you jaded? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, the thing is the for me the writing itself is a refuge from everything. I mean, I can write and when I'm writing it's like I'm in a different world, right? So when I'm sitting there on the computer and I'm writing and it's like I'm watching the whole thing as if I'm watching a movie and, you know, I'm not thinking about anything else or being anywhere else. And you get into that moment of, I guess, flow. And it is, uh, you know, it's just a release. I mean, nothing mm -hmm. else can touch me there, right? Um, so for me, the writing, you know, when when all the bad things happen in the world that I can't deal with and I just go write and, and for those couple hours, everything is gone. The social media aspect of it and the marketing aspect of it is a totally different thing. And I hate it. And part of the reason I hate it is because there's an aspect to it that feels um, to me disingenuous mm -hmm. you know and um uh what's the word unauthentic you know and and yeah jaded and cynical and you know so it's it's sort of like uh you go in and I have a I have a Instagram a Facebook a website what else? I do have Twitter, but I don't hardly work hard on Twitter. <laughs> you sound anymore. like me. You're like, I have the Twitters and the yeah, book faces but, and whatever yeah. else. And, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, the thing is, is it's sort of like this, this idea that you have to go in and you have to post and you have yeah. to be present. And I'm like, I don't know what to post today. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to say. What do I have to say beyond, oh, what a beautiful day it is today. What do I care? You know, mm -hmm. I don't care. I don't care. Why do you care what it is I think about the beautiful day? Right. You know, or, you know, and then you get in there and it's sort of like, oh, I have a book coming out. Well, okay. So for the next six months, you guys get to see that I have a book coming out and all the reviews and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's boring. It's boring. And I feel like, okay, here I am now in just my marketing mode. And <sighs> there's just nothing about it that I find interesting in terms of myself. Yes. You know, I find it interesting to see what other authors are posting. I find mm -hmm. it interesting to see what my friends are posting. I like it in terms of um, just keeping in touch with people that I uh, don't keep in touch with, you know, in other ways. But in terms of like book marketing, um, I feel like I have to be someone yeah, you're on not social media yeah. that I'm not yeah and you know I and so what ends up happening is I end up kind of going oh I can't I you hate know, it I yeah it, I find it draining yeah, yeah. I mm -hmm. find it really draining and I hate it and you know and sort of the only thing I find really interesting to post is my dog my dog <laughs> here's Stanley he's super cute he is, you know. And, you know, so that's sort of the stuff that I end up posting that only it's the only thing that feels to me authentic. Yes. You know? 
because I do think he's super cute. So I think know. the the profiles that I'm attracted to are the ones where somehow, some way, people found a way to be somewhat authentic. Like yeah. I love seeing a writer's day in the life and they're, they're like, okay, I wake up, I make my coffee. I like to leave my phone in the closet in the other room so I don't go on it. And then they talk about how they made their coffee and then how they got inspired for their writing. And these things interest me, like the way other people live. Um, so. so you need a Sophie in your life. She's yeah, going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need a me because I can't do my own, but I can do anyone else's. <laughs> yeah, that's what, yeah, do mine. Do yeah. mine. Sure. Yeah. What to do. I have yeah. the same way. I'm like, Sophie, here's the passwords. I don't want to know. I don't want to know who's saying what. I just, just oh, do yeah, whatever you want. We got a hate, yeah. hate email recently, yeah. so that was... That was fun. But, well, I'm um, I'm still happy that you checked your email and responded yeah. to me. So thank you for that. It made us feel better. <laughs> I do check that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, there's just so many awesome themes in your books, and I think anyone will find, I mean, something that they click with or connect with. Um, the most recent one I read of yours is a dangerous education. And I really love the concept uh, from quantum physics, the entang entanglement. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to listeners what that means and and just well, yeah. the inspiration for that book was that I had read about maternal fetal um, tumorism, which is uh, where whenever a woman is pregnant, whether she carries the pregnancy to term or not, the cells from the fetus um, stay in her body for like her entire life. And they found those cells in a woman's brain. Wow. They moved throughout the body. And so it, so, and those cells also will pass into her other children. So women, especially are chimeras, you know, I mean, we have this, we have several different people in us at any time. You know, you've oh. got your mom, your grandma, your sisters, your brothers, whatever. And I thought, how fascinating is that? And it led me directly to quantum physics and this idea of entanglement, which is like when two cell, when two particles are entangled, no matter how far apart they are, when one has a reaction, the other one, when one does something, the other one has a reaction. Mm. and um at simultaneous reaction and it made me think of like my mom and my sisters I have three sisters how I'll be thinking about one of them and they'll call you know and I'll be like how weird I was just thinking about you or whatever and I thought could that be I mean there's so much we don't understand you know and could that be like you know maternal fetal you know shimmerism I mean could that mm. be because my DNA is in my mom or in my sister or, you know, I mean, could that be like the whole entanglement thing, you know, with mm -hmm. DNA? And it got me to thinking about women who had given up their babies for adoption. And I had read these stories about, you know, adoption is not a... Um, is not as clean as I think a lot of people like to make it sound. You know, women who, especially in the, in the I'd say 40s, 50s, 60s, through the 70s, I mean, when I was uh, in high school, 
I remember girls just dis- dis- not high school, like junior high, disappearing. And everybody knew they were pregnant. And they would go to like uh, you know, um homes, maternal maternity homes, and have their baby. And sometimes they would come back and sometimes they wouldn't. But everybody knew that's where they were. And, you know, and a lot of women were forced to young girls and women were forced to give up their children for adoption back then, because that's what you did. And um, and I was reading a book. um, I can't remember the title of it now, but it's in my um, bibliography in that book. But they uh, had a PTSD, essentially, Mm -hmm. about it. And they would have physical and emotional reactions that they didn't understand, Mm -hmm. like on the birthday of the child they've given up or, you know, just generally um, PTSD. And um, and so it took this kind of stuff just so rarely studied because it's women, you know, and I just found the whole thing so fascinating because I knew for myself, you know, that I would never be able to give up a child for adoption because it would haunt me. Mm. I would always wonder where that child was and how they were doing and if they were sick and if they needed me. And so it would impact my entire life. You know, for me, abortion had to be the choice, you know? And, um, and so I just think for some women, um, it's just it's just not as cut and dried as they like to make it seem, you know, like I couldn't live with that. And so mm -hmm. that was the sort of inspiration of the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since you brought up abortion, now I'm curious. And this is pretty timely with uh, the vote. Was Mm -hmm. that two days ago? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now I'm curious. Uh, if and this is maybe a little bit dark, but if that what did you call it the fetal entanglement, maternal fetal microshimmerism? Yeah, shimmerism. I, I'm wondering if that connects there too. If there's anything there, I, these we need more research because yeah. now my mind is just wondering, like the abortion. Yeah, the the cells are in there even right. if you abort the baby. The right. cells will still be there. So yeah. It's, it, it affects you always. So it, that is, of course, you know, when they try to take away contraception. I mean, obviously what you want to do is prevent it, uh, you know, an unwanted pregnancy period. Yeah. But yeah, that, but that's why. I mean, that's the thing that people like don't understand about women's reproductive health is that these consequences go beyond even what we can imagine because it hasn't because they're women right nobody really studies it i mean my god they have just begun to realize or even begin to study nobody doctors don't even understand menopause right they don't and you know they're still relying on studies for home hormone replacement treatment that were done 30 30 years yeah that were flawed yeah and they still don't understand what it's all about. Nobody's mm-hmm. studied it. Nobody. Right. You know, so you you got to just look at this and just say, you, you know, you guys coming down with all this certainty about this and this and about abortion and menopause and, uh, you know, adoption. You don't know what you're talking about mm. because nobody does, right. you know. 
And that's, you know, for me, that was the whole inception of uh, a dangerous education was like, look, these things have consequences that you cannot imagine. And, you know, and I loved so much how you talked about the need to connect with with the kids and the teenagers that are being taught in school systems on their level and sort of make the education applicable to what they're going through. A lot of the education still to this day is so inapplicable to what these kids are experiencing that it's outdated, basically. It's it's education that's that's years outdated and, and these kids don't know any better. They just know they don't connect to it and nobody, like, does anything about it, you right. know, so... Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, I mean, when my, I have two daughters, they're like 28 and 26 now, but you know, when they were growing up and I made a promise to myself that whenever they asked the question, that was when I answered it mm. because that was when they wanted to know. Mm. And, you know, people take in what they can understand to the extent that they can understand it. So it's sort of like when you're curious about mom, what's abortion? Okay. That's when I answer it. I don't care where we are. In point of fact, we were walking down the street in Philadelphia when I got asked that question. Mm-hmm. You know? and But that's when I answered it. I didn't put it off. I answered it right then. And, you know, and because that's when they want to know the answer. That's when they're ready to hear whatever it is, you know, that you, um, that what they, they're there. They're waiting to hear the information. But, it, you know. It's so cool because you talked about how adults lie, right? How we lie to our kids, right? Because for whatever the reason, we think we are protecting them or we think they're going to, they need to know this later in life. And the book talks about it. It's, there's not exactly the best moment to, to give you the correct answers about something because that one chance that you get to answer something might be the last chance before someone makes a lifelong mistake or an error because they didn't, they were not given correct information. That's right. And not just that, you know, you, that they can, if they're put off, they, they may not never ask the question again. Right. Or they, somebody who gives them bad information. Right. They instead, mm-hmm. You know, so it's just sort of like you people, children, young adults, whatever, they're naturally curious. Why do you want to keep information from them that can keep them from making a terrible mistake? I don't understand that. I don't mm-hmm. understand how that is protecting anybody, you know? So that was why I wrote that book, you know? Mm-hmm. So. And of course, now I have to ask you also, um, do you ever uh, research or or, or uh, get interested in reincarnation or uh, past lives? Because your books are so closely re- related really to experiences of heroines or people going through a time in history that, well, we, of course, we can't remember that from this time period, right? I don't live in 19th century, but but you describe it as if someone lived there. So I'm just curious if you ever met people that maybe talked about living, uh, f- you know, in a time in the history because they, they were reincarnated into it or you uh, saw YouTube videos on it or maybe, I don't know, just wondering. Yeah, Absolutely. There was a period of time back when I was in, I don't know, junior high school or something where reincarnation was huge culturally. Everybody was reading about it and talking about it. And, you know, and I read a ton about it and, you know, and a friend of mine like deep dove into it and stuff. And 
Um, so yeah, and I find it really interesting. And I do know people who have done past life regressions, mm -hmm. you know, and talked about it. And once when I was working in news, we went and interviewed a woman who uh, did past life regressions, you know, and she wanted, she asked me if I wanted to do it. Did you? And I, I said, no, because I said, no, for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. Not that I wanted to know, but like, I've done so much research <sighs> I and see. I, my head is so full that I didn't think I could trust it. I see. You know what I mean? That I felt like I couldn't, that regardless of whether I believed it was true or not, or not, and I do think there's a strong possibility for it. I don't discount it at all. But like, I wouldn't be able to trust whatever story that I came up with because I have too much information in my brain. I yeah. see. And I believed that I could so easily make something up out of what I knew. And so I just didn't want to waste anybody's time. You I know? see. So, but, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think part of it, you know, I have a really, really great imagination, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, I can put picture things vividly mm -hmm. and, um, you know, where does that come from? Mm. I have no idea where that comes from. That's, that's amazing. You know, it always fascinates me how people uh, think or process information because you said you see pictures very clearly and I do not see things in my head. And it's so funny because sometimes uh, my dad will make a comment, you know, and my mom will say, don't talk about it. It's dinner time because she somehow pictures whatever it is. And I always say it doesn't bother me because I can't picture it anyway. It's just words to me. So... It's fascinating. I have a friend who's like you. She yeah. doesn't picture. And if weirdly mm -hmm. enough, she's an artist, mm -hmm. but she doesn't, she can't picture, mm -hmm. make pictures in her head. But and I can I'm feel, like, wow. you know, I feel um, it. So I like, when I read, I feel all the emotions, but the way I see it is kind of like shadowy. I never see details of it. It's mm -hmm. just very, not really in color. It's like very, very basic. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. It's probably good since you're a nurse, and then yeah. you won't remember yeah. random weird things. <laughs> I don't get grossed out. I don't because I, I can't really picture it anyway. So it's wow. yeah. I That's hear things and see yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see things like very vividly. Wow. Like in my head. I mean, you can say something, and I've got an instant. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Oh, so cool. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Let's do naked truth. Let's do naked truth. Um. Okay. Do you want to start? Sure, I'll start. Okay. My naked truth is that I'm going to create for me in the hopes that whoever it needs to touch will find it. That's it. That's a good <laughs> naked truth. I like it. That's good. My naked truth is, is that I'm fascinated by your writing. I'm going to keep reading it. And I hope that we stay in touch. And I hope that, I don't know, I, I just... Um, I don't know. I just get so excited just thinking about just how you create. And now that I know, like, you see movies in your head. I don't know. It's just fascinating. <laughs> All of it is fascinating to me. And so thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Oh, that, you know, this has been fun. This has been a really good conversation. Um, I've enjoyed it very much. And I think uh, one of the things I think, um, I don't know why this came to me, but like in um, which movie was it like High Plains Drifter, whatever Clint, Clint Eastwood, he says, and one of the things that always stays to, with me is that 
um, it's, uh, let me think it's right, that people, it's what people know about themselves inside that makes them afraid. And that is something that I like to remember when I'm writing in terms of, you know, when you're writing character and conflict and you're like, and you have to think of what it is about a character that makes them most afraid to go into the world. What is it that mm. keeps them from getting what they want? Or what is it that motivates them? Um, and that's what it is. It's what they're most afraid of, or it's what they know about themselves. It's the things that they fear. And when you're looking at, you know, things politically, and you're looking at people who are determined to keep other people in their place, you have to ask yourself, what is it that they see in themselves that makes them so afraid? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's what I ask myself sometimes just to, so that I don't get so frustrated with the world that I, you know, <laughs> I've said that many times during the day sometimes. Uh, that's why I think it's good to have, you know, something to be so passionate about. And when you, when you talked about, you know, being so passionate about the process of writing and how you can just focus on that and be in the zone, be in the flow. About your naked truth about people fearing... Uh, about fear in general. I think people are afraid because women are really powerful. I'll just say that. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think if you look at the elections, you know, over, over the last, you know, two days ago or whatever, I think, I think every time there's an election like that, it scares people. And I think too, I've been saying this forever. I keep waiting for it to happen. We're looking at sort of the last gasp of the power of you know, white men. And nobody releases power easily, you know? And, you know, and I think this sort of idea of, of whiteness sort of morphs as, you know, um, as people sort of blend together, you know, as people mm. sort of mix, you know? I'm mixed. <laughs> what, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what people should be doing, right? I mean, mixing and loving each other and like not making these distinctions about everything. I mean, you know, and the power has been in white men's hands for like centuries and centuries and centuries. Can we please just move on? Right. At least in Western Europe, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's it, like you said, it's it's playing on the fears of people. So it's like, yeah. how how can, the, you know, they, the politicians, it seems like they want to manipulate us because they want to separate us. They want yeah, us they to make us feel like we're different people. We're all the same people. We feel the same way. Yeah. Nobody wants to be trapped. Nobody wants to be stuck. Nobody wants to be put down. You know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. It's very true. So uh, it'd be nice if, you know, I don't know. I personally you know, would love it if, you know, more women took power, more, you know, minorities took power, and we just sort of took power, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. Love it. Well, you're, you're helping us by enlightening us with your books and showing us that change is possible and giving us happy endings. And so we can stay optimistic that things, good things are possible. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I, I like to believe that's true. <laughs> it is. I, it is. 
If you're impacting one person, yes. that's a domino effect. You yes. just need yeah. one person mm-hmm. um, and you're impacting many. And I am borrowing one of these. I don't oh, know which you, one yet. You can, yeah. <laughs> my, I left some for my sister, so she's going to be reading. Oh, I just perfect. came back from Germany, so she's going to read some. Um, how can our listeners find you? And we'll also post it in our comments to make sure people find it. Um, how, how can they buy your wonderful books? Um, they can go to my website, which is, you know, www.meganchance.com. And, um, you know, you can buy or order my books at any bookstore or online, pretty much I have the website. available everywhere. Okay. So, you know, I, like I said, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on uh, threads, I'm on Goodreads, all those places. Amazon. Yeah, Amazon, yes. So if people type in Megan Chance, they can find you pretty easily. Yes, you can find me. If you go online and you type in Megan Chance, it'll take you right to wherever you want to go. It's pretty, pretty easy. And if people want to meet you in person, you probably have some events that you advertise on your website. Yeah, that's all on my website. So where I'm going to be, you know, next. I think my next event is in February in Seattle where I'm um, interviewing Kristen Hanna. Well, I can't say enough. I just so appreciate I'm so grateful uh, that you responded to the email that we did this. And I hope we stay in touch. And um, yes, that's that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I'm you're so welcome. I thank you for, you know, getting in touch with me. Yes, it would be great to stay in touch. And this was lovely. I enjoyed it really a lot. So, you know, thank you for having me. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> Bye. See you, See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>